want to begin the talk tonight with a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh. We've been sharing a number of poems and readings and quotes from Thich Nhat Hanh, and maybe it's being conscious that he's coming to the end of a long life. You know, he's uh, had a very serious heart attack, and he's in Vietnam now, and will, I think, spend his final days there. And uh, just maybe being being conscious of, you know, what a an incredible life he's lived, and how much he's brought to the world, and come back and share some of those reflections, not just on Thich Nhat Hanh, but others as well. But this poem is one of his, a well-known, a well-known poem by him. It's called, Please Call Me By My True Names. It says, Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow. Even today I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings learning to sing in my new nest to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird <clears throat> which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I'm a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I'm the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I'm the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I'm the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I'm a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced, forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills up the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open the door of com compassion. Please call me by my true names. This uh, poem by Thich Nhat Hanh conveys the point that Rebecca was sharing last night, again from Thich Nhat Hanh, that, that we all have within us seeds of good and seeds of evil, of harm. We have seeds of kindness and seeds of cruelty within us. Which ones get nurtured and expressed depends on which ones we cultivate, which ones we, which ones we nurture. If we practice kindness, we become kinder. We practice generosity, we become more generous. Practice mindfulness, we become more mindful. 
practice compassion, we become more compassionate. It's, we're building that, if you like, the muscle. We're training ourselves to, to embody, really, the quality that we're, that we're nurturing. In the same way, if we practice cruelty, we'll become crueler. We practice hatred, we'll become more hateful. So in, in Buddhist understanding, the key distinction between people is not between good and evil. You know, the good people doing good things and the bad people doing bad things. It's really the difference is whether our mind is trained or is not trained. The difference is where we've, what we've cultivated. Not that there's something intrinsically that makes you good or bad or me good or bad, but really how we have chosen to meet our moments. And a lot of that may, I mean, some of that may come from circumstances beyond our control. You know, so we may, may out of grace, encounter teachings that let us know that certain things are possible, that we can meet our experience in, a, in different ways, that we may have lived all our life thinking, well, this is just the way things are. This is just the way I am. This is the way my family has been. And that we just kind of keep that, keep that going, um, perhaps because we don't see any alternative. But, so it may be just you know, a blessing, a grace that it comes to us that, oh, there is another way. And I think that's one of the most powerful things we experience in this practice and in other skillful practices as well. That, and that is the recognition, the realization that our happiness really depends on how we meet our experience. It doesn't depend on circumstances and conditions, although they can play an important role. But fundamentally, if we choose to meet our moments wholeheartedly even the most dire situations and experiences can be moments of freedom moments of peace you know um victor frankl who many of you i'm sure know of who survived the auschwitz um concentration nazi camp of world war ii you know spoke about you know um they may, you know, they may have been few in number, but we all remember the, those people who went from hut to hut giving their last piece of bread away. Um, they, were, they confirmed to us, I'm paraphrasing here, they confirmed to us that they could take, you know, the Nazi could take from us the, everything but the last of the human freedoms, the freedom to determine how we meet our circumstances, how we meet our conditions. Nobody can take that from us. And that's what this practice, you know, keeps reminding us of. And I think pretty much all skillful practices come back to that recognition, that remembering that our freedom is in how we meet our experience. You know, we may be, it may be very difficult, it may be very dire, but if we meet it with an open heart, as the lines from the poem that I've been sharing from Dorothy Hunt, peace is this moment without judgment, this moment in the heart space where everything that is is welcome. If we can meet whatever is here with an open heart, then, then our life can be one of, of freedom, of peace rather than of suffering. So the key for the Buddha, the key is, is not whether you're good or bad, it's whether you... Train, have trained your mind. 
And there's a very well-known saying from the Buddha. He said, nothing can you do you more harm than your own untrained mind. Not even your worst enemy can you do you mo more harm than an untrained mind. And we can see that, can't we? If we see that with people around us in our in our world who, you know, are doing very harmful things. And we could say that, you know, we're not saying they're not responsible for their for their deeds and for their words, but it's a mind that's untrained. All it's been trained in is greed and hatred and clinging and all of those things. So the, the what's at the core is have we have we trained our minds? And that's what we're doing here this weekend, and that's what we do when we practice. It's a training of our minds. It's a it's a seeing where our minds perhaps habitually go you know, by what we've done many, many times before, our habits take us to, you know, often to unhealthy or harmful behaviors. But all that's required, and I say all, maybe put that in quotes, because it's not always easy, but all that's required is to bring what is unconscious into awareness, bring what is below the line, above the line. And then we can see you know, if we're acting out of unconsciousness, then we're not, you know, it goes without saying we're not going to be aware. We're not going to be in a position to choose. We're just acting, acting things out because we've done, um, we've done things in this way before. Jung said, um, what is not brought to consciousness comes to us as fate. What isn't brought into consciousness comes to us as fate. It's really the same way, same, saying the same thing. If something remains unconscious below the line, it's affecting us. You know, whether it's with in migraines or, you know, fits of anger that we don't know where they come from or irritable bowel syndrome or all sorts of conditions. So why did this come? And often it's what's been suppressed and what's not examined. So what this practice keeps inviting us to do is to bring much of, you know, bring what is unconscious into awareness. Sometimes it's bringing what's conscious into awareness, but looking at it more clearly. But often it's bringing what we're not seeing, but we're acting out, bringing it into awareness. And then when we do that, we can make a choice. And that choice is really the biggest difference in the world is the difference between freedom and suffering. Because when we can choose, we can choose well-being, happiness, peace, freedom, rather than choosing, you know, to keep in that habit loop that's going to keep us in suffering. We get maybe some momentary comfort from our drug or from our drink or from our behavior or our, some other addiction or craving. But it doesn't, it just keeps going and we go round and round in circles. You know, it's the suffering that leads to more suffering. Arjun Chah, the great Thai teacher, distinguished between two kinds of suffering. He said there's the suffering that leads to more suffering. That's when we keep doing the same thing over and over again. We think, oh, if only I had this. Okay, gives me some comfort. But it really, it's like drinking salt water. You know, we want slake our thirst. I've never said slake before. I think. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, yeah, it, 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 it doesn't slake our thirst. So, um, so bringing, bringing what is unconscious into consciousness, otherwise it just, we, we act it out as, as fate. So 
Nothing can do us more harm than our own mind untrained. And nothing can do you more good than a trained mind. Not even your mother, your father, your parents, your loved ones. No one can do you more good than your own trained mind. You think of that. I mean, it's amazing. If you, if your mind is trained, if you're not caught up in clinging and hatred, aversion, delusion, unconscious habits of behavior, but a, but a living according to your values, your intentions, your aspirations, and what the needs of the moment are, then that really is a life of freedom. And nobody could give you any more than that. You know, it's what um, a teacher, Philip Moffat, and, and out on the West Coast, um, um, has a book on the Four Noble Truths called Dancing with Life. I mean, when we're in that relationship to our experience, we're really dancing with life. You know, whatever comes along, we can respond to it wisely and kindly and appropriately. Um, but a lot of the time, we're, we're actually not dancing with life. We're wrestling with life, you know. We're wanting to pin it down. We're wanting to hold on to the things that we like. We're wanting to get rid of the things that we don't like. And we're in this constant struggle. And it's, it's what the Buddha spoke about as dukkha. Dukkha suffering. Dukkha is... Yeah, it's, um, it's this unsatisfactoriness, it's thing, the thing not being okay. So nothing can do you more good than a trained mind. So what the Buddha laid out was a path of training, a path of training that would lead us from suffering to freedom. And it all is organized around these, what are called these four truths, for noble truths, for ennobling truths, for truths that free us. And the, the truth of suffering, the existence of suffering, the first of these noble truths, the second of the noble truths that, that the suffering, that our suffering comes from clinging. It comes from being in a, in a fight with our experience, resisting the way things are, wanting things to be the way we want them to be, wanting things we don't like to go away. That's, that's the source of our suffering. That's the origin of our suffering. And that f we can find freedom if we can let go of clinging. If we can see how we're clinging and see that there's an alternative to it, then we can find freedom from suffering. That's the, the, the end of suffering, the third noble truth. And the fourth of the noble truths, we normally think of it, you'd go the path and then the end. But these truths go the end and then the path to the end is the fourth noble truth. And that's a path of training. It's a training in living ethically, speaking wisely, acting wisely and compassionately, living, engaging in, in work that is beneficial to ourselves and to others and to the world. And it's this called the Eightfold Path because there are eight limbs to it. But these three main areas, one is cultivating wisdom, the second is cultivating um, ethics or, um, or, or virtue, living, living a kind and a wise life. And the third is cultivating the mind through meditation, through concentration, through wise effort, through mindfulness. So it's a path of training. So this tr the path promises us a way of untangling ourselves from the tangle of our lives. It allows us to see where we're holding on and to let go, see that it actually is painful to hold on. 
you know, to try and cling to what can't be clung to. It's kind of somebody compared it to rope burn. You know, if you're holding on to a rope and you're falling and your hands are getting burned, you're holding on. The best thing may be to let go or holding on to a hot coal, you know. And it's burning you, but if you let go, then there's, you know, you let go of the, let go of the suffering. So seeing how maybe we're wanting someone or something to be a certain way and seeing how this is causing us suffering and then allowing things to be the way they are, finding peace in this moment. There's a nice uh, phrase for it that um, a Jesuit um, teacher and writer and... and, uh, Being no longer with us, Anthony DeMello said that freedom is absolute cooperation with the inevitable. Absolute cooperation with the inevitable. Now, if something's inevitable, wouldn't it be wise to cooperate with it? <laughs> to co op, you know, to absolute cooperation with the inevitable. That it's making peace with the truth of the way things are. This is the, this is the freedom of, of the, the, the Buddha talks about and other teachers and other traditions point to as well. The freedom that comes from saying yes to what is. And the, 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 you could see it as a two, two main elements to this, two main components. And one the Buddha talked about as abandoning the unskillful, abandoning words, thoughts, actions that actually lead to harm. You know, so through mindfulness, we see, oh, this is actually leading not to my well-being, but to my own harm or maybe the harm of others as well. And choosing to let go, you know, finding in the, um, the words, again, of Viktor Frankl, another quote from him, he said, between the stimulus and the response is a space. And in that space lies our ability to choose. And in our ability to choose lies our growth and our freedom. So if we can find that space, I think a lot of what we're doing in the practice of mindfulness is finding that space between stimulus and response. Because if we're unconscious, we'll tend to go straight from stimulus to response. We'll, if we've done something habitually and then we have that kind of gnawing feeling, without even thinking about it, without even intending in that moment, we'll go and do that thing. You know, how many of us may, may be so tied to our devices that we feel anxious between conversations or phone calls or between different things? And there's this nervous energy. Oh, I can go check up. I can check if anyone's liked my post, post on Facebook or my Twitter, whatever, tweet. Or my, <laughs> or my, you know, have I got any emails in or text messages or all that? Um, and and easily we can just do that. Or it could be to eat, grab a cookie or, you know, do something else that just, you know, just automatic, unconscious. But if we can find that space between stimulus and response, we can make another choice. And if we can make another choice, we can make a better choice. And that's the, the path that leads to freedom, leads to happiness, leads to well-being. So I want to make a transition here. Not sure how I'm going to make it, but <laughs> work on it. So we've been, um, the practices we've been doing, the heart practices, particularly the practice of loving kindness, we, we um, 
we cultivate this practice as and ultimately with the intention of wishing well to all beings everywhere you know and we've been saying we we begin where it's easier you know and like building a muscle we we don't start with the 300 pound weights you know we start where we can and then we build up the muscle we start where it's easier with maybe with ourselves with a loved one dear friends and then just going to neutral people and then ultimately to where it's more difficult you know political figures and people in our lives that we have trouble with or people at work who rub us the wrong way and we had we had a conversation in one of the groups this morning um or this afternoon actually that um around um you know somebody being having some reaction to this wish that all beings be happy and 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 safe and free from suffering and and the sense that for them the the you know it was kind of sense that it was an unrealistic an unreal hope you know that that be the case so we talked about that and kind of explored the idea of is it, is it possible even if it seems unrealistic that we can still have that wish and that intention for all beings um you know how many people here in this room would like to see racism ended in our society and in our world nobody i think would say no to that but how many of us think that that's going to happen in our lifetimes maybe even in our children's lifetimes you know but nonetheless does it mean that we wouldn't work strenuously um as i hope we would want to or are doing to do everything we can to to change the the situation to to heal wounds that come from hundreds of years of oppression um so it's it's not so much a question of um i think of of whether of possibility although sometimes we do need to work with our mind which may be saying no that's not possible that's not viable but what i want to talk about tonight is really i mean really about an ideal that is very much out on the edge of what is possible and that is the um the ideal or the archetype of the bodhisattva how many of you are familiar with the bodhisattva what that kind of the meaning of the bodhisattva in kind of buddhist tradition just not not everybody maybe half of you so this will be a kind of a fun exploration of of the bodhisattva um the bodhisattva just firstly the meaning of the words two words bodhi is awakening like the tree that the buddha awakened under was is known as the bodhi tree and and the word buddha is an awakened one so same idea bud bud and the same same origin as our word for a bud a bud is awakening a bud is a buddha you know so it's the same in indo indo european languages from all where they they came and the buddha was only 2500 years ago but that that same so bodhi awakening and sattva is a being it's a it's a being in the in the pali language so it's a being of awakening you could say it's an, an awakening being a, a a being committed to awakening and the archetype of the bodhisattva is of somebody of a being who you know in in traditional traditionally in in the buddhist kind of teachings post the buddha mainly 
Um, it's seen as somebody who is fully awakened themselves, but stays in the realm of suffering until all beings are liberated. That's one way of framing it. That that there's such magnanimity of heart that they stay in the in the the mire of suffering until every being has has awakened. So it's a it's a really big-heartedness that kind of that kind of inspired quality that they could be in the realm you know the deva realms the realms of the gods and being beyond suffering but they choose to stay in these realms that's the kind of the notion in in the uh, in the tradition of the of the bodhisattva and um and here is here is the very um how do you say um low-key way that the, the bodhisattva vow is expressed. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to eradicate them all. The gates of the Dharma are limitless. I vow to enter them all. The Buddha's way is inconceivable. I vow to attain it. So it's it's really this kind of sense of the, the the impossible is there, and I commit myself to achieving the impossible of 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 giving my all to to attain these you know what might seem like impossible ideals, liberating the liberation of all sentient beings, the the understanding of the deepest teachings of the Dharma. The overcoming of the most dire delusions, and and fully um, understanding, fully committing to, um, fully um, attaining the um, the the end of suffering that the Buddha talked about, and this is a, from a teacher, Shantideva, an eighth eighth century Indian Buddhist teacher who's very um, you know very. Um, renowned teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And he says, these are, there's hundreds of these vows, but there's just a few of them that go, may I be a protector to the helpless, a guide to those traveling the path, a boat to those wishing to cross over, or a bridge or a raft. May I be land for those requiring it, a lamp for those in darkness. May I be a home for the homeless, and a servant for the world. So these very, in a way, kind of ideal way that these goals are, are put out. But there's something I think that it that the archetype really crystallizes, and that is the power of intention, the power of having the intention of benefiting others. And so the bodhisattva, I think, can be seen as really the crystallizing of the wish for all beings to be free, all beings to be happy, all beings to be safe, free from suffering. That if if you fully embodied that wish, that intention for all beings, what you would be expressing really would be the ideal of the of the bodhisattva. That wish and that intention to give everything of yourself in order to, you know, in order to help free all beings. So it's really a seeing of ourselves in a larger sense, a larger sense of self. Our suffering is 
so much tied up to being caught up in a limited self. You know, the sense of when we're really caught up in suffering, there's, I would say there's always this sense of an I, this sense of an I and typically a sense of others, you know, a sense of separation. I that's wanting something, I that's craving something, I that's hating something. You can't really have the hating and the craving without the sense of the, the kind of the fight or flight energy of wanting or pushing away. And so what the Bodhisattva ideal expresses is, is that kind of the falling away of the small eye and the opening to the sense of being part of something larger than ourselves. So I think of, you know, the times that we're living in, you know, as being particularly challenging ones. There are times when, in many ways, values that we feel, I think many of us, I hope many of us feel are anathema to us, are very much front and center on the agenda in the country and in, in the world. You know, where cruelty and a sense of kind of strength that comes from putting somebody else down, um, you know, separation of us and them, um, vict victimizing and um, making other people into the other, you know, which is the basis of a lot of the, the, the hatred and the racism and the genocide that we've seen through through history. You know, the, you, you know, them, you make them less than human and it's not hard to kill people, you know, to commit mass killing of people if you treat them as, you know, in the Rwandan genocide as, as cockroaches, you know, was the language that was used, you know, as subhuman in some way. So we're living in a time where, where values and ideals um, that I think for, certainly in terms of the Buddhist teachings that, that are anathema are very much front and center where there are leaders who, um, you know, who lead from a place of, of division and separation, you know, and that's the kind of the basis of their, their, their whole message is speaking to some part of the population against everybody else. And so in this situation in this time, um, I believe that um, having the intention and having that archetype of a bodhisattva can be very powerful to us. It can be, it can help us kind of concentrate our, our thoughts and our visions onto what needs to be done, what changes need to happen, but not coming from a narrow separate place or an individual place, but coming from that larger sense of we and of all of us. You know, when I think of bodhisattvas of our time, I mean, I think it's a really helpful ideal and image and vision and archetype um, because it fits um, not just as an ideal. I mean, I, I see people in our world, in our lifetime, who really embody the archetype of the um, of the Bodhisattva, you know, we talked a lot about Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, of, of just the way that that he has lived his life, and just the just the the way you know you only have to see him kind of walking walking on the earth, the kind of the gentleness, the kindness, the compassion, you know, the words that that don't seek to divide and hate, but seek to bring 
union and unity and harmony. You think of the Dalai Lama just coming out of the Buddhist tradition, those two, two beings, you know, how all of the suffering of the Tibetan people and the Dalai Lama himself and how he's been vilified and, and the, you know, the killings and the torture and the destruction of the culture, the Tibetan culture. And the, and the Dalai Lama's often asked, you know, don't, why don't you hate the, um, hate the Chinese for what they're doing? He said, well, if I hate them, who is it that suffers? You know, it's like if I hate them, it's like I'm holding on to that burning coal. You know, but if I'm, if I'm compassionate, if I can love them, then maybe that can help them to change. Maybe they can see the error of their ways, and I'm not suffering in doing that. And think of others in our time, in our, in our lifetimes. Um, you know, one person for me, um, you know, has been very, you know, has really, even though not coming out of the Buddhist tradition and no reason why a bodhisattva should come out of just the Buddhist tradition, but coming out of the Christian and also animistic traditions is Nelson Mandela. You know, that I, I see Nelson Mandela as as really a bodhisattva, as somebody who used his own life as a way of transforming himself, used the suffering that he experienced as a way of transforming himself and as a way of really cultivating compassion and wisdom. And in doing that, being able to be a vehicle for a relatively peaceful transition to democracy in South Africa. I mean, people were talking about race wars and, you know, it wasn't completely free of violence, but, um, you know, it was a, a relatively peaceful transition um, to to um, pop, uh, majority rule in 1994. Think of others, you know, think of Rosa Parks, you know, in the late 1955, sitting on the bus and after a long day's work and, and and the driver conductor saying, you know, you've got to move because there were white people standing. And she, no, I'm not going to move. I'm going to take my seat. And she got arrested. And out of that came the the bus boycott for I think 381 days. That ultimately was very very, you know, central role in the in the civil civil rights movement and role of Dr. Martin Luther King. And so, you know, just those those. Ordinary people, you know, she was a seamstress and, you know, a working class woman, um, was willing to was willing to take her own situation and take the suffering, embody the suffering and be willing to change herself and and put her, you know, put her body on the line, as it were, in order for a greater freedom. You know, think of. You know, think of Dr. Martin Luther King as well. Of, you know, he, he spoke about, um, you know, no matter how much you, you, you hate us, we'll still love you. And, you know, through our willingness to suffer, we'll win a double victory because we'll win you in the process, you know, that, of, of change. And that, that, um, so in our, in our own lifetimes, we see, um, um, embodiments of the bodhisattva the bodhisattva ideal this archetype of the of the bodhisattva and um jack cornfield who many of you know or know of read um of, or listened to and if you haven't you should <laughs> um read the 
a path with heart or a wise heart. Um, anything that's has always got a heart in it. That's a good sign. <laughs> um, and um, in his book, The Wise Heart, Jack spoke about, he described three qualities of a bodhisattva. You could think of a bodhisattva as like a, as a spiritual warrior, as somebody who's, who's struggling, you know, fighting, but not with weapons and arms that harm, but, but in a spiritual, you know, spiritual struggle. And um, Jack speaks about the qualities of the bodhisattva. It says that she or he the bodhisattva, begins by acknowledging and accepting the truth of their situation. And that's not to say that it's right or it's just, but that it's a reality. That is that they, they, faced, they face the truth, turn towards the difficulties, and shine the light of understanding on them. So you think of Nelson Mandela in his six-foot-by-eight-foot prison cell on Robin Island. You know, when he was sent to prison for life, he actually was in prison for 27 years, but when he was given life imprisonment, he didn't know if he was ever going to come out, you know, or, he'd, or if he'd die in prison. But he, and he accepted the truth that this is where he was likely to be. He didn't say it was right or it's just. Clearly it was immoral. It was an immoral society and it was a racist society. But he accepted the truth of this is where I am. And in working to free ourselves to change, there's only one place that we can never really start from. And that's here, right here, right now. You know, we might ideally say, well, I'd like to, you know, in order to, if I had this situation, I'd like to have, you know, the, the compassion of the Dalai Lama or the, you know, the wisdom of the Buddha or whatever. Well, you know, good luck, but this is where you are right now. We always have, <laughs> we always have to start where we are. You know, we start where we are and acknowledge the truth of our experience and this turning towards the truth. This is what, this is what, you know, Mandela does in, in, in his prison cell on, on Robin Island. And secondly, he or she works to find peace within themselves by engaging in a training or practices to let go of painful and afflictive states such as anger, greed and hatred and develop positive ones like love and compassion and peace. So, Inherent in this idea of uh, this archetype of the bodhisattva is the willingness, is the acceptance of the reality, the truth of where we are, and the willingness to transform ourselves, to train ourselves in this process of, of, of bringing about change. We change ourselves. So Mandela's story is a really a, an, an amazing example of that. You know, when he went to prison, 1960, I think it was, he, um, you know, he's, he was a, still an angry young man, you know, very militant, wanting to change the system. Um, but in his time in prison, he, he got to know the, the warders, the guards. He, you know, negotiated with them for better prison conditions and access to books and, and writing implements and 
not having to wear short pants because part of the thing was to humiliate them by, you know, grown men by making them wear short, you know, short pants and just all the ways that, that uh, a society and a prison system could wanted to degrade people. And the oppressed people, the, the, um, the African majority in, in South Africa. But he, um, he uses that time to, to transform himself. He, sees, he begins to see the good in those who are, you know, who are holding him and, 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 and imprisoning him and essentially imprisoning the whole of the society. He sees that, that they have hopes, they have dreams, they have fears. And he sees really the possibility of engaging with them and, and getting into a process of, of negotiation so, so the third of the, the qualities that Jack speaks about is that the Bodhisattva sattva envisions actions and a path of liberation for herself or himself and for the, for the world and commits to working for, the, for those ends. And Jack says, envisioning has enormous power. With our vision and imagination, we can help create the future. Envisioning sets our direction marshals our resources, makes the unmanifest possible. So if we think of that, that of like taking our own, taking the truth of our situation, of our experience and beginning here, and then using whatever pain and whatever difficulties that we have to work with to transform us, to have that be the way that we grow, the way that we let go of clinging, the way that we cultivate a more, a, a more of an open heart. So, so what Mandela does is he, he cultivates forgiveness, you know, forgiveness towards those who have harmed him and continued to do so really all the time he was in prison. And then envisioning how to, really how to make a path to liberation, not just for themselves, but for for their community, for the people, ultimately for all beings. And for me, this is a very powerful ideal. It's like, you know, it's like taking on a suit of armor, you know, this archetype that's bigger than us. You know, it represents something. It represents a sense of intention, of hope, of possibility, of a way of, of being you know, a, a future that's, that's more compassionate, that's just a, um, that's more peaceful than, than the world that we're living in now, that we can envision that and have that be kind of what, what we move towards. And in doing that, we can, we're strengthened in, in being able to meet our experience because we're not doing it as the small eye, you know, of like, oh, how can I do this? I'm so weak, I'm just on my own, what can I do? We're part of something larger. And in all the examples I spoke about, there's, there's always the sense of, of coming from a place of not just being alone, not just being the isolated, separate, or, you know, separate eye, but, but speaking for, you know, a much larger group, for the people, but ultimately for all beings. So... This evening, I invite you to reflect on this ideal, this archetype of the of the Bodhisattva. Um, Milarepa, the great Tibetan sage, once said, "Long accustomed to contemplating compassion, 
I've forgotten all difference between myself and others. Long accustomed to contemplating compassion, I've forgotten all difference between myself and others. It's kind of that falling away of that separate self and that compassion, heart as large as, as the world. Did you know that Nelson Mandela meditated? He wrote in his autobiography, and he, this was to his then wife, Winnie Mandela, in 1975, he wrote, You may find that the cell is an ideal place to learn to know yourself, to search realistically and regularly the processes of your own mind and feelings. In judging our progress as individuals, we tend to concentrate on external factors such as one's social position, influence and popularity, wealth and standard of education. But internal factors may be even more crucial in assessing one's development as a human being. Honesty, sincerity, simplicity, humility, purity, generosity, absence of vanity, readiness to serve your fellow men, fellow beings. Qualities within the reach of every soul are the foundation of one's spiritual life. So he's clearly gave, gave, given some thought to this process of self-transformation in, in his cell. At least, if for nothing else, the cell gives you the opportunity to look daily into your entire conduct, to overcome the bad and develop what is good in you, whatever is good in you. Regular meditation, say of about 15 minutes a day before you turn in, can be fruitful in this regard. You, you may find it difficult at first to pinpoint the negative factors in your life, but the tenth attempt may reap rich rewards. Never forget that a saint is a sinner that keeps on trying. Never forget that a saint is a sinner that keeps on trying. So it's very much the Christian kind of uh, cosmology, the kind of sin and sinner, but very much the same idea that this that we're that we're going to be caught up in suffering until we find a way out of suffering. You know, if we think of <laughs> suffering as sin, you know, that we can, we can by keeps, if we keep seeing where we're clinging and we keep seeing the possibility of letting go, even if we're not quite ready to let go, if we see that possibility, then at a certain point we can, we can find the possibility of letting go. Rebecca and I went on a retreat a few years back with a Tibetan teacher. Uh, we won't name him right now, but um, but he shared a story. Um, no, we can, but um, um, about how he he used to drink, um, you know, five or six um, diet cokes um, every day. And one of his Western students, after a while, came and said to him, "You know, they're not very healthy." <laughs> <laughs> the Diet Cokes. And he kind of thought about it. And then he said, but he liked them. You know, he liked these Diet Cokes. He got very used to the taste. So he said, I went on drinking them for about four or five years. But I kept thinking about this, you know, think of maybe these weren't healthy for me. And in the end, I let them go, you know, and I stopped drinking the Diet Cokes. So I thought, you know, it's, it's better, to, better to be aware and not make the choice to, you know, the healthy choice, than to be unaware. Because if you're unaware, you're just not seeing. Once you've brought it into awareness, even maybe you're not ready to take the step, but you can at least be aware that there is the possibility of change. So, so 
there's, it, it can't overestimate the importance of bringing what is unconscious into the light, what is below the line into awareness. You know, that Jung quote again, what, what is not brought to consciousness comes to us as fate. You know, it comes to us through the back door or through the windows. One of the leaders of the uh, this anti-apartheid struggle, Tokyo Sexuales, said, uh, the liber- liberation struggle of our people was not about liberating blacks from bondage, but more it was about liberating white people from fear. And that's a very powerful statement. It wasn't about freeing black people from bondage, but freeing white people from fear. How fear can keep people tied so tightly in in suffering and that you know that just that the the freedom that's possible if if there is a letting go if there's an opening up when he left prison in 1990 mandela had already gained a deeper freedom he said as i walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom i knew if i didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind i'd still be in prison if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'm, I'd still be in prison. So just that wisdom, that clarity of seeing, okay, that we could be liberated in an external sense, but we could still be caught in prison internally if we're holding on to hatred, bitterness, any kind of clinging, we're going to be going to be suffering. Archbishop Tutu summarized um, Mandela's legacy for history He's, he talked about it as magnanimity the readiness to see the good in the other and the inspiration to us all that there is goodness in human beings he said there's goodness in him that makes all of us feel a little better for being human to say i'm proud to be human because there's someone like a nelson mandela this is one of his biography, Anthony, a biographer, Anthony Sampson, said of Mandela. He said, in some ways, it's reminded me of one or two friends of mine who've been monks, who had a, sa- a sort of same kind of solitary life, who have the feeling that they can say what they think because they've acquired that basic sort of peace of mind and strength within themselves. They don't have to think twice. My feeling is there's something of that in him. So that way in which we can transform ourselves through, really through our suffering, how we deal with the difficulties, how we can let go of, of clinging, let go of suffering. This is, I'll finish off with this. This is from um, the Tibetan tradition again. And this is Joanna Macy, wonderful teacher who's, been at the forefront of the ecological movement and the ways we can deal with all the harm that we're doing to the earth. And this is called the the Shambhala prophecy. Shambhala's kind of this visionary kingdom in the Tibetan tradition. And this is a story, and it kind of, I think it can be helpful to us, and we'll finish with this. It says, there comes a time when all of All life on earth is in danger. Barbarian powers have arisen. Although they waste their wealth in preparations to annihilate each other, they have much in common, weapons of unfathomable devastation and technologies that lay waste to the world. 
It is now when the future of all beings hangs by the frailest of threads that the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. You cannot go there, for it's not a place. It exists in the hearts and minds of the Shambhala warriors. But you cannot recognize the Shambhala warrior by sight, for there is no uniform or insignia. There are no banners, and there are no barricades from which to threaten the enemy. For the Shambhala warriors have no land of their own. Always they move on the terrain of the barbarians themselves. Now comes the time when great courage is required of the Shambhala warriors, moral and physical courage, for they must go into the very heart of the barbarian power and dismantle the weapons. To remove these weapons, in every sense of the word, they must go into the corridors of power where the decisions are made. The Shambhala warriors know they can do this because the weapons are manomaya, meaning mind-made. They're made, made by the mind. This is very important to remember, Joanna. These weapons are made by the human mind, so they can be unmade by the human mind. The Shambhala warriors know that the dangers that threaten life on earth do not come from evil deities or extraterrestrial powers. They arise from our own choices and relationships. So now the Shambhala warriors must go into training. How do they train, I asked. They train in, use of t in the use of two weapons. The weapons are compassion and insight. Both are necessary. We need this first one, he said, lifting his right hand, because it provides us the fuel. It moves us to out to act on behalf of other beings. But by itself it can burn us out. So we need the second as well, which is insight. So the first one's compassion. The second one is insight into the dependent co-arising of all things. It lets us see that the battle is not between good people and bad people. For the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. We realize that we are interconnected as in a web and that each act with pure motivation affects the entire web, bringing consequences we cannot measure or even see. But insight alone can seem too cool to keep us going, so we need as well the heat of compassion, our openness to the world's pain. Both weapons or tools are necessary to the Shambhala warrior. So these weapons, these insight and compassion, wisdom or clear seeing and compassion and kindness towards all beings, going into the world with this archetype of the bodhisattva, the spiritual warrior. You know, maybe the words are idealized, the vow is idealized, but very much a down-to-earth commitment and intention to heal the suffering of the world, heal the, heal the suffering of other beings, and know that, knowing that in doing so, that we're not doing it alone. There are millions of other people doing so. I just saw on today on Insight Timer, there's 8 million people on that app. There's other apps, Calm and Headspace and other tens of millions of people. There are a lot of people doing what we're doing here. A lot of people committed to awakening in the training that Marina, maybe others here, are uh, Joe, others um, part of with uh, Jack uh, Cornfield and Tara Brock. There's what, 1,200, 
1,200 teachers in training, a two-year training program. So there's, all of this is happening and going out into the world, and it's all for the benefit of all beings. No, I don't think anyone's going to become a millionaire through, uh, through, uh, through teaching, and maybe one or two do, but, um, but, through, um, but, but for, the, for the benefit of all beings and from that open-heartedness that we can do this. So let's just sit quietly for a minute, finish up, and just take in if there's anything helpful in what I shared this evening, anything unhelpful you can leave behind on your chairs. We'll sweep it up. Finish with this poem by Derek Walcott, the Caribbean poet who died um, a couple of years ago. The poem, Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.